0: I don't care how spiritual you may think you are. If you've got some issue against your wife, against some relative, against some church member, then you are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit, you are walking in carnality. A mark of godliness is that you receive other people unconditionally, and a mark of carnality is that you don't.
1: Hello and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogi, Senior Pastor at Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. We're nearing the end of our study in the book of Romans, and today in our passage from Romans 15, verses 7 to 13, Pastor Brogy looks at how we are to accept and love one another. Just as Christ accepted us to the glory of the Father, we are to accept our brothers and sisters.
0: Take the Word of God this morning, would you and turn to the Book of Romans, chapter 15? If you're joining us for the first time, we've been working our way through this letter for, well, almost three years now. And I know really of no other book in all the New Testament that's more exacting, more demanding, more intensive, and more challenging to your mind, heart, and soul than the Epistle of Paul to the Romans. Now, some might say, Well, what about the revelation? At least for me, the revelation is not as half as complicated as Romans. For me, Romans is one of the most mind-stretching, life-changing books in all of the Bible, so it's rightly been called the Mount Everest of the New Testament. And if you can understand the great doctrines found in the book of Romans, the whole of Scripture will open up to you. Now, don't ever forget that Romans was not written to lost people. I suppose we use Romans more than any other book in all the Bible to lead those who have never met Christ into a saving relationship. But remember he's writing to a church of saved people he's not trying to get them saved they already are saved he's trying to get them to grow deeper and firmer and more consistently in the grace of god almighty and that's why we're working our way chapter by chapter and verse by verse and we want to begin in the seventh verse of the 15th chapter where we left off last time follow along as i read therefore Accept one another just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers and for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with the people and again Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise Him. Again, Isaiah says, There shall come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, and him shall the Gentiles hope. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing, so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now turn back just a couple of pages in your text to the 12th chapter, let's review where we are so that you can see the broader context of our passage this morning as you can see on this chart when you come to this section of romans chapter 12 and verse 1 you come to a brand new section the very first word here in the text is therefore and so as we come to this third section 12 through 16 we're dealing with the practical section of romans Romans 1 through 8 is the doctrinal section. And if you remember, I gave you three words for every section so that you can think your way all the way through Romans. Three words dealing with condemnation, justification, and sanctification. Three great doctrines emphasized in the first section. When you come to the end of chapter 8 after God's righteousness is revealed through the cross, he vindicates it in chapters 9 through 11. The end of 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Well, the critic might say, but it appears God has abandoned Israel. No, he has not. And so in the ninth chapter, he deals with Israel's election. That was the first word I gave you. In the 10th chapter, Israel's rejection. And then in the 11th chapter, Israel's restoration. That God is a promise-keeping God. That the promises he made to the people of Israel will be kept. That the church has not replaced Israel. We are not the new Israel. God still has a national people by whom he brought the first coming of Messiah and through whom he will bring the second coming of Messiah. When we come to the 12th chapter, which you have in front of you this morning, we turn the corner to a new section. The very first word in the 12th chapter is the word therefore. So he's going to take the great doctrines of 1 through 11. And he's going to apply it. And I want to take a moment to set the context, because just like in real estate, context is everything. Location, location, location is everything. And so if you don't understand the context, you will miss the meaning of what he's going to say. So we're not surprised when we come to the 12th chapter that he's going to apply God's righteousness. This is a pattern you see all the way through the scripture, because what we believe should influence how we behave. Doctrine and duty always go together. God gave us truth, not just to make us smarter sinners, but to make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our learning should result in a different kind of living. And so here in the 12th chapter, I gave you three key words. Do you remember them? Hopefully by now over the top of chapter 12, you have the word bond. That's the key word to help you to remember the 12th chapter. Here in the opening two verses, he deals with our bond to God that we are to dedicate ourselves to Him as a living and holy sacrifice. Then in verses 3 through 16, He deals with our bond to other believers. And He speaks to the truth that there are various gifts in the body that makes us dependent on one another, that you cannot grow independently of a Bible-believing local assembly where the gifts are represented. And then the third section of this 12th chapter deals with our bond to the world. And he speaks about what our attitude should be even towards those who persecute us. That vengeance is the Lord's, that we are not to seek revenge. And by the way, this 12th chapter is the exact same pattern you find in the 15th chapter of John, where he deals with our relationship with God, our relationship to one another, and then our relationship to the world. When you come to the 13th chapter, the word you should have written over the top is the word behavior. It's a chapter that deals first with our behavior to the government in the first seven verses. That we're not to be rebels, we are to submit to the government. We are to obey the government unless, of course, they ask us to do something contrary to the will of God. Then in verses 8 through 10, he deals with our behavior to our neighbor. We are to love one another. We are to owe nothing to our neighbor but love. And then in verses 11 to 14, our behavior towards ourselves. That we are to make no provision for the flesh in regards to its evil desires the third key word that i gave you to this section if you remember is the word brothers so chapter 14 which we've been studying for the last several weeks deal with brothers who are weak the first half of chapter 15 where we are today deals with brothers who are strong And then when we come down to the 14th verse through the rest of the chapter, he will deal with brothers who are to be, those who are yet to be converted. Now, that's the broad context. Let's zoom in on the immediate context by walking through the first six verses. We read in the opening verse, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. We saw in the 14th chapter that potentially there was the elements for a church split. There were arguments over diet and days. Some Christians thought they could eat anything they wanted. Other Christians, based on their understanding of the Old Covenant and its application today, thought they should eat only vegetables. Some Christians said that there were certain days that still maintained significance. Still others said, no, all of the feast days of the Old Testament were symbolic. They were fulfilled in Christ and every day is alike. And even today, we have Christians who differ on non-essential matters. And by non-essential, I don't mean unimportant. Everything's important in your spiritual walk with God. But by non-essential, I mean that these are not issues that sometimes we deal with today that are salvation issues. I'm not talking about things where God plainly says this is right or this is wrong. But there are some issues that God does not specifically address in the Scripture. And so he doesn't give us a set of rules. He gives us principles by which we can make wise decisions and please the Lord in the process. So some Christians think that they should never go to a restaurant on Sunday. And their conscience does not give them the freedom to do that because they feel like they're making someone else work. And that's their conviction. Others say, I have no problem. Some Christians think you should never go to a movie. Other Christians think I can go to a movie as long as it fits within the parameters of Philippians eight. Some Christians have a certain conviction as to how they should educate their children. Others have a different conviction. Some Christians say it's a sin to trick-or-treat on Halloween, and others would say it's a sin not to, because you miss the opportunity to be all things to all men and to win some children to Christ. And so there are some peripheral matters that are not essential to salvation, and sometimes even the definition of peripheral, what is peripheral, is debated by Christians, Now, remember, the problem here in the 14th chapter was not in the fact that there are differences between diets and days. The problem dealt with attitudes and actions. The so-called strong Christians, who knew they were right theologically, were not building unity in the church. They tended to flaunt their freedom in front of their brothers such that their brothers would despise them. And the so-called weaker Christians immature, not in the sense that they were not just as godly as the stronger brothers. There's nothing in the text that indicates the weaker brothers were less godly, but they were weaker in certain areas of conscience. And when they saw some of their brothers in Christ exercising their freedom, they judged them, they criticized them, they despised them, and they too We're not building unity, but causing division. And so when people came to church, instead of leaving blessed and unified, they left angry and mad and divided towards one another. And so in the 19th verse of the 14th chapter, he says, Pursue the things which make for peace and for the building up of one another. And that admonition applies to everyone in the body of Christ. But again, these stronger brothers who are theologically correct, were carnal in their exercise of that theology. And so in the opening verse of the 14th chapter, he says, "'Except the one who is weak in faith, "'but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions.'" But Paul's not done with the stronger brethren. He wants them to go further. And so the opening verse here in the 15th chapter, now we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. And we saw that that word ought was also used in the opening chapter where Paul says, I am under obligation. I am a debtor to preach the gospel. Just as there's a certain oughtness, a rightness, a debt that we have, in releasing the good news to a lost world, there's an oughtness that we are to express in bearing one another's burdens. This is not a suggestion. This is a command that we are to bear the weaknesses of those who are without strength. What does that mean? To just put up with them? No, it doesn't mean simply to tolerate them, but to support them, to get underneath them. A wise, maturing Christian asks, how can I help my weaker brother along? and so Paul is saying to these believers you have a responsibility look at verse 2 each of us is to please his neighbor that's real Christian Liberty not doing whatever you want to do but doing it in a way that like you ought to do it that does not bring about division but unity in the body of Christ each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification God who examines our hearts. So when you come to church, you don't simply ask, what do I want? You ask, what do you want? I don't simply come to church saying, how can you serve me? But how can I serve you? I am to please other people. And we saw the negative connotation of that in the New Testament and the positive connotation in the body of Christ. And Christ is our example. Look at verse 3. For even Christ did not please ourselves. Why should we seek to please our neighbor? Because the Lord Jesus is our example, and he did not seek to please himself. If anyone who ever walked on planet Earth could say, I'm going to do it my way, it was the Lord himself. But the one who created the universe, the one who enjoyed the special fellowship within the Godhead and the splendor of glory, the one who left the worship of angels, came not to please himself, but to obey the Father that you and I might find salvation. And so Paul says, being found in appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient even to the point of death on a cross." And so in writing us of Christ's example, he is reminding us when you have the slightest impulse, the slightest inclination to create some kind of division in a local assembly, don't forget the cross. Don't forget the Lord Jesus. And to substantiate the truth, if you remember, he quotes from Psalm 69. Psalm 69 is one of the great messianic psalms of the Old Testament. Line upon line upon line, God prophesies what the cross is going to accomplish and how it will unfold. Only God knows the future. And so God tells the future through these individuals, which again is one of the five proofs that God gives in the New Testament and in the whole of Scripture to show that he wrote this book. There's only one book that God wrote on planet Earth, and it is the Holy Bible. And one of the ways we know is that of fulfilled prophecy. No other book on the face of the Earth can make that claim. For even Christ did not come to please Himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those who reproached God the Father fell upon God the Son. Throughout His whole life, He experienced the reproach of men. And yet he never returned evil for evil. He never returned insult for insult, but he entrusted himself to the Father and he bore our sin in his body on the cross that we might find salvation. So having just quoted from Psalm 69, a messianic psalm that would describe the fact that Messiah was not coming to please himself, but to please the Father that sinners might be redeemed. He then says in verse 4, For whatever was written in earlier times, and I hope over earlier times, by now you've written the words Old Testament. All of the Old Testament is equally inspired. It is all profitable. For whatever was written in earlier times in the Old Testament was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. He's just saying, listen, the instruction the application of the Old Testament does not exhaust itself with the Old Testament writers. That God was also writing for the church. God was also going to give for generations to come truth that they could apply. And if you want to learn how to persevere, to keep on going when the going gets tough, you study some of the Old Testament biographies. They were written so that we might have hope. Read Abraham, read Jacob. Read David, read of Moses, read of Sarah, read of Jeremiah. God will give you a sense of hope. Whatever was written was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So it's very appropriate for Paul to quote Psalm 69 and then to remind us of the significance of the Old Testament. Remember, the chapter and verse divisions are artificial. They're added almost a millennium after the Scripture is completed to help us find our way around. But they can be distracting if you don't see the context and the flow of thought. And remember, their argument is over certain Old Testament diets and days. And so some in their thinking might think, well, you know, I guess the Old Testament's not all that important. And Paul is reminding us, no, it's very important. All Scripture is profitable, that the believer might be equipped for every good work. It's all the Word of God. Look at verse 5 now. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. So he's saying, look, not only are you to embrace the Scriptures, verses 3 and 4, we are to embrace the saints. That's verse 5. When you embrace the Scriptures, you get hope. When you embrace the the saints, you get harmony. there's There's a sense of togetherness. We are to accept one another. We are to be of the same mind. How? According to Christ Jesus. We do it like Jesus did. He didn't come to please himself. And so neither are we to please ourselves. And so we are to be of the same mind. Why? Verse 6, so that. Here's the reason so that. With one accord, you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus. If we are of the same mind, if there is unity in the church, then there's a togetherness such that with one voice Literally, I suppose you could say in singing, but just in our dealing with one another, there's a unity, there's one voice that together we're not seeking self, we're seeking the glory of God Almighty. And then in summarizing the last two verses, he says in verse 7 where we left off, therefore, accept one another just as God also accepted us to the glory of God. He's making a parallel, don't miss it, Between how God accepted us and how we are to accept one another. Please note, it doesn't say how God accepts us. That's true. And when you come into the body of Christ, you are loved with an everlasting love and God will never abandon you or forsake you. But that's not what he's referring to here. I have the last two letters circled in my English text. As God has accepted us past tense so receive or accept one another. And so he wants to remind us and to get us to meditate on and to think about how it is that God found us, that we weren't all that hot when God found us, that that we were reprobate sinners, but God nonetheless loved us and sought us and saved us. And so Paul says, you want real unity in the church, go back and remember how it is that God received you. And so you can see this morning, the title of the sermon is Receiving Sinners. Uh, I came in this morning, I saw it on the sign, it says Receiving Sinners, Sunday, 9, 15, and 11. And I suppose that could be on the sign every week, but it is actually the title of the sermon. Because we find here in our passage how it is that God receives sinners. And I thought that while we were on it, I'm going to give you two directly from our passage today. And since we're on the subject, I'm going to give you a third one that comes directly out of the Gospels. So if you're new, there's a note-taking outline there on your bulletin. You might want to jot down a few thoughts for further reflection, because I want to give you three different ways in which Christ receives sinners. Number one, Christ Jesus receives sinners unconditionally. He receives sinners unconditionally. Look again at verse 7. Therefore, accept one another just as, just like, Christ also accepted us to the glory of the Father. Remember how he found you. Remember, Remember what you were like before you met the Lord Jesus Christ. You understood that you were a sinner, that your sin deserved judgment, that your sin separated you from God, yet nonetheless God received you and if God did that for us we are to do it for one another because as Jesus said a disciple is not above his teacher nor is a slave above his master and so Jesus said take my yoke upon you and learn from me we would do well to learn from the Lord Jesus this morning Paul said it this way to the church at Ephesus be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving each other how? just as just like God in Christ forgave you you see a tension that runs all the way through the scripture with so many different truths. On the one hand, as in one parable Jesus teaches, a mark of conversion is that you forgive other people. It's a genuine mark that you have met the Lord. On the other hand, God recognizes the possibility of a true Christian to withhold forgiveness. And so here he says, be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just like God in Christ forgave you. Some of you this morning are having difficulty in your marriage, and you need to release your partner, you need to forgive them, and you really won't be able to do it until you step back and remember how it is that God in Christ Jesus forgave you. Some of you might have an issue with someone in the church. And you need to relieve, release that person and accept that person just as God in Christ Jesus received you. Now, he says, be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as. Same truth as here in our Roman text. That's a mark of godliness. And I don't care how spiritual you may think you are. If you've got some issue against your wife, against some relative, against some church member, then you are not walking in the fullness of the Spirit. You are walking in carnality. A mark of godliness is that you receive other people unconditionally. And a mark of carnality is that you don't. When Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, he says, And I, brethren, speaking to believers, could not uh, speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink past tense i gave you milk to drink not solid food for you are not yet able he's just reminding them of what they were like when he found them he started the church at corinth and then he preached the gospel to those people and they were all baby christians and he treated them in the proper way the problem was is four years later when he writes this letter in the next verse he says indeed even now you are not yet able For, he says, you are still fleshly. There's jealousy. There's strife among you. Are you not carnal? Are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men, like an unbeliever would walk? And of course, the implication is, yes, you are. So someone who is quarrelsome, who's divisive in the church, I don't care how long they've been a Christian or how spiritual they think they may be. God says they are doing just the opposite of what he wants them to do and to be. Now hold that thought, and let's go to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 2. If you're new to the Bible, the second book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, is the gospel according to Mark, written under the supervision of the apostle Peter. And go, if you will, turn, if you will, to Mark chapter 2. And I want you to see an illustration of how Jesus received sinners. We read in chapter 2 of verse 14, and he passed by, and he saw Levi... He's also, by the way, called Matthew. Levi is his Jewish name, Matthew is his new name. Just like it used to be Saul of Tarsus, now it's the Apostle Paul. Just like he used to be called Simon, now he's called Peter. He passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth and he said to him, follow me, and he got up and he followed him. So he's at this tax booth in his hometown of Capernaum where they would levy duty on goods. And of course, since the tax rates were not always that clear, it was easy for an unscrupulous man to take extra money. And that's why these guys were not popular. A nickname for them is sinners. And so in virtually every place in the New Testament where you see the term tax gatherer or tax collector or publican, depending on your translation, you see the word sinner linked to it because that's the way they were viewed. Remember on that occasion, Zacchaeus, the wee little man we teach kids about, the tax collector, and he gets saved, and you see a mark of his conversion by his changed life, and he says, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. If he defrauded anyone, yes, because he had. It's in Greek what we call a first-class conditional statement. You'll be interested in this. Some linguistics are important in the New Testament. And this is one of them. You can ask a question in Greek different ways. And one way to ask it is to ask it in such a fashion that it's assumed to be true. Like when the devil said, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. He was not questioning whether or not he was the Son of God. Interpretively, you could write, since you are the Son of God. The Father had just declared it from heaven. You are my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased.
1: The people in Jesus' day would have been shocked by him calling tax collectors to follow him. They were hated and considered sinners. To listen again to today's message entitled, Receiving Sinners... Use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets or listen online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also call and request a CD or DVD copy. Our phone number is 877-787-7478. And this is program ROM69. You can help support the ministry of Search the Scriptures by calling 877-787-7478 or by giving online at searchthescriptures.org. Your generous donation plays a vital role in providing biblical teaching and in helping to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Tomorrow we continue our message, Receiving Sinners. Join us then as we search the Scriptures.